We are back at Made You Think. This episode, we're joined by Andrew Lynch, who I've actually not talked to him. This is the first time we're talking live, but we've talked a lot on Twitter over the past, uh, how many years has it been? Probably like five or six years. Yeah, at least something like that. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller for Made You Think, so I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for having me on, guys. Um, yeah, I know Neil and Nat through uh, Twitter, which seems to be out. Everyone knows everyone these days. Put a background on me. I've listened to Made You Think for a good few years now. Um, it's exactly the kind of stuff I love listening and talking about with other people, like interesting books that we found that someone's recommended to me and you get a friend to read it and you just get to chat about it and share your thoughts. I'm based over here in the UK, so I'm currently finance director for a small company based in Nottingham, UK. Before that, I've done a bunch of different jobs, some startups. I was the uh, first full-time employee at Scribe Media, Tucker Max and Zach Obont's uh, company that they founded a few years ago. Um, so I did that for a good 12 months until I got fired. Uh, interesting backstory there if you want to read it. Um, <laughs> it's a good article. A, yeah, yeah. There's a big article about it. I don't know if I've read that article. I think I'll have to check I'll that out. I'll send you the link afterwards, yeah. yeah. Far and away the most popular piece on my website, that's for sure. I don't have Nat's uh, SEO skills when it comes to book notes, posts, and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> but yeah, I'm uh, delighted to be here. Thanks, Kyle. We're really excited to have you on too. Um, so the book we're covering today is The Quest of the Simple Life. And I actually don't know how I came across this book. We have some theories. Morgan Housel had tweeted about it a couple of years ago. I don't think I came across it through that tweet because I feel like I only heard about it like six months ago. So yeah, whoever shouted out this book on Twitter or somewhere, some random forum or something, and I came across it, thank you. But I saw Andrew actually tweeting about something kind of similar or relevant to this. And I recommended the book to him and uh, and he loved it. And so when when we decided to bring the podcast back, I thought, hey, what better book to uh, to cover first than to uh, to talk about this one? Because as you'll see, there's a lot of themes in here that we've talked about over the years on the podcast. And this book kind of feels like it was written in 2020 or something rather than in the 1800s. Yeah, I think that like that's what struck me the most is that we'll get into this in a little bit, but some of the common complaints that the author has about his everyday life and how he's feeling and how he wants to deal with those problems could have been written last year, could have been written in the height of the pandemic, could have been written yesterday, to be honest, which is, again, it's like something you've seen in other books, like um, letters from a Stoics like this, like Seneca is writing about how he hates being sat in the center of Rome and he's hearing like the hustle and bustle of the streets outside and he just wants to get away from it and he can't concentrate. Again, that, that could have been written any time in the past 2000 years. Yeah. And I think I, I do want to say up front, like, it's not like I agree with every single thing he says in the book, but it's it, just from a way of thinking, it seems to align really nicely with people who are in like the FIRE uh, movement, which by the way, I don't even know what FIRE stands for. I assume it's financial independence, something, something. Retire um, early. Retire early. Okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It is so, financial yeah. independence though, right? F- financial first- independence, retire early. And then there's lean okay. fire, which is like the Mr. Money mustache, you know, cut your expenses to zero so you can do it on a low income. And then yep. there's fat fire, which is like the millionaire fast lane, make five to 10 million and then retire off the index fund interest. Yep. And then mixed up in there, you've got, I don't know if you guys have heard of like barista fire, which is I've got enough money to retire, except I might work 10 hours a week in Starbucks for a bit of social contact and a little bit of income and for health insurance reasons. Interesting. So before we dive into the actual uh, content of the book, kind of the big picture of this is the author is a guy who is working and living in London. I believe it's London, right, Andrew? 
yeah. where, where he starts. Yep. And he's basically talking about how he has this craving to kind of get out of the city and go, go to the country. Um, some of that is because of, uh, I think he did, he had like a trip. Uh, it sounded like that, uh, he spent some time in the country and really enjoyed it. But then the other thing is he starts looking at how much he's spending basically to stay alive and to live, um, in the city. And that would be things like rent, uh, transportation, dinners that he has to go to for, for work purposes. Um, and basically all of these expenses that he has just to kind of live his day-to-day life. And so it kind of feels like he's on that treadmill or rat race as we would, we'd probably call it today. And so then that, that basically takes him on this journey to figure out how can I go and actually, uh, live in the country. And so he buys a place and, or not buy, does he buy the place or does he rent it at first? I think he's just renting it. I think he's just renting it. Yeah. But he's making improvements to it when he gets out there. And the book is kind of like a journal almost of his entire journey uh, from being the city resident, dreaming about living in the country to actually doing it. And then the day-to-day challenges and benefits of, of that kind of lifestyle. Yeah. I think it was just interesting seeing how similar all of the reasons were right and like how many yep. <laughs> people i feel like i've had this same conversation with over the last yeah i'd say like 2 years when it really started picking up and maybe it is just that all of this got a lot more heightened during covid i mean especially in areas where people like weren't leaving their houses and whatnot uh where it was like oh this kind of like sucks being stuck in, in a city right and the thing i kind of liked about this versus like Walden maybe is here. You kind of like see his psychology as he goes through the process of leaving and like trying to figure out how to leave versus uh, Walden is kind of like, Oh, well, you know, I did this and it's awesome. Uh, but not as much of the, like the, the mindset shift or the defense of it per se. And I, I like how he talks about, you know, one element is just like how hard it is to find a good spot. I feel like this is, an issue that I hear often from people who start to try to explore this, where it's like people kind of want to have everything, right? You, you want to you want to have the really nice spot and the great view and the great land, and you want to have like you know maybe a river or a lake or all of these things. And there's remarkably little land available where you can do that anymore. Like so much of it's been bought up or as part of these huge estates, or in Texas as part of these huge ranches or farmland. And I think at one point he says that people who own large amounts of land with beautiful spaces should be like forced to subdivide them and sell them off (laughs) so that more people can have beautiful land. And I'm like, it's it's tough because on the one hand, I'm sort of like, well, we shouldn't just like take away people's property. I mean, it's usually like a pretty bad thing to do, but also like, yeah, I do kind of want a house (laughs) on a nice river. Like, what do you do with, uh, you know, in Texas, we have King Ranch, which is like, you know, 1 million plus acres. Oh, wow. I don't know how beautiful wow. all of it is, but you can imagine that somebody who was for that kind of policy would be very like, all right, yeah, we're going to take over King Ranch and we're going to give it to the people. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's hard to imagine how that would actually be implemented, but yeah, it, like it's, it's hard to find land that has all these desirable characteristics. That's not, you know, insanely priced out unless you're willing to go to the middle of nowhere, but then you run into, you know, the problem he ran into in the book where he like found the perfect cottage and then it didn't have water. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) He had to like truck water in by the bucket and they wouldn't have had cars back then. So it's like, all right, you're going to ride on horseback 
two miles or whatever to somewhere else and fill up buckets with water and bring that back for your water every day. Right? Like you often end up having to pay some kind of price like that. I mean, for we have a house 45 minutes outside Austin that's in just this like beautiful enclosed tree area and it's like super lush and it's just like gorgeous. It doesn't feel like you're in Texas at all. And we don't have internet. <laughs> there's oh wow there's, okay yeah yeah so that's the no, yeah yeah exactly there's there's no internet line there so we're just like surely know. that's a isn't that a feature rather than a bug though isn't that the whole like point of the place yeah. is that you can go there to like disconnect and get yeah. away from it all but it would be yeah, nice yeah, to be yeah, able to send true. an email or something exactly it would be nice to be able to go out there and then if a work emergency pops up you can solve it from there right too, right not have to drive right. 20 minutes into town although i don't know maybe i'm maybe he would say that i'm like too too plugged into the city life to properly enjoy it, which I think (laughs) would be a a pretty fair criticism. On that point, I did a little bit of research. So I went on Rightmove, which is the British version of Zillow, to look at properties that are available in or around the town where he ends up, which is in the Lake District. I don't know how well you guys know UK geography, but he's basically moving from London, which is down in the southeast, all the way up to the Lake District, which is way up in the northwest corner of England. Like if you were to try and drive it in a day, it's probably a 10-hour drive or something like that, which I know may not be that far if you live in Texas, but for us, it's one side of the country to the other, basically. I found a okay-looking house. It needs a bit of work to like modernize it a little bit. It's 2,300 square feet and costs £800,000, so $1.1 million-ish. But it has a lovely view and running water and internet. So, good. You know, they got the they got the water now. Exactly. Got water out exactly. there. Yep. But yeah, to try and find a place like that with, like you said, Nat, the the view and the babbling brook at the edge of the garden and the corner pub, you know, five minutes down the road and all that kind of stuff is incredibly expensive, particularly around there. The one problem I you know, I ran into when I started exploring something like this, and uh, pretty much everybody else I know who starts exploring this runs into is the social isolation. And I don't feel like he totally adequately addressed that in the book, where it's like, and I think it's hard too, because I, I couldn't figure out exactly how long since he adopted this lifestyle it was since he wrote the book. But it's really easy to be critical of all of the things you didn't like in you know living in a situation for 20 years right like he was living in london for 20 years and he's writing about how awful it is living in london blah, 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 blah. but it wasn't clear that he had lived out in you know this country house for very long so you know after 20 years what would his complaints be about being out there right like i don't totally buy that this completely solved all of like life's problems and now he's eternally oh, yeah. happy definitely um and uh, cuz the the issue that i really that seems to always come up as just this the social element where it varies based on where you live. But in Austin, everyone's really spoiled because pretty much all of your friends are within 15, 20 minutes. Like 20 minutes is a long drive here. Like that's if somebody lives 20 minutes away, they like might as well live in another state because it's just like nobody wants to go that far. <laughs> so if if you're living 45 minutes away, then it's really kind of a slog for people to come see you. And people just aren't gonna go out that much. And so you have to go into the city to see them, or you have to like try to get a cohort of people to all get country homes in the same area right but even even then you're not going to have restaurants and you're not going to have like coffee shops and things like that and that it just feels like such a huge barrier it's like 
all of the other all of those parts are so nice, but I just think that like not having a stimulating social circle around you kind of like outweighs all of those other lifestyle benefits. I don't, I'm sure it varies person to person, but to me, like no other quality of life thing would be worth being kind of like socially isolated, isolated. From community. Yeah. Yeah. I think the, I mean, the, the, this is going to sound like trying to have it both ways, but like the ideal is to have the ability to go out, you know, and out of the city and spend some time out of the mm-hmm. city, but also spend time in the city, at least for me, that's what I've noticed. Totally. If, if I get too much of one over, over the other, it, like I kind of need that balance. That's something I noticed in New York. Like when, now when we were living there, it's like, I would sometimes get overwhelmed by how much social activity there was. Right. Cause like, I feel like, especially during those few years, there were so many people that we knew in the city and almost everybody I knew, uh, in New York lived in Manhattan and it was pretty easy to meet people. And I just, found myself doing way more socializing than I would do otherwise than even I probably prefer to do. Uh, but then, you know, you get the opposite where during COVID, right. I didn't like to see anybody, uh, for, for a while. And that that's like too much social isolation. And, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it, there's like a balance, at least for me that I found that, that I'm happiest at. And that's probably different. I'm guessing for everybody, there's a balance, you know, some people might skew further to the loner side and some people may skew more to the social side, but, I'm sure for everybody, like, I'm sure if you talk to him, the, the author, five, 10 years after starting this, if he was there for five, 10 years straight, he, I'm guessing he would bring this up if he was being honest. Yeah, I think so. I think one, like, one of the things he mentions in this book, right, is, and I've seen this from friends who lived in London, is that, okay, you might both live in London, but one of you lives in Northwest London and one of you lives in Southwest London or East London and to uh, decide to meet up for, drink or a coffee or something like that it's a 30 minute tube ride into the center of the city for both of you um, and then 30 minutes back and then if you're going to be with them for an hour and a half like suddenly you're trying to carve out three hours on a thursday night or something and it becomes really difficult so like he says there's a quote from the book he says like in a city there's none of that pleasant dropping in for an evening which is possible in country towns of not immoderate radius Timetables have to be consulted, engagement books scanned, serious preparations made, with the poor result perhaps of two hour two hours hurried intercourse. And I think by intercourse he just means talking with a friend rather than what we would think, because two hours <laughs> is a long time for that. Um, but so no, he, people were like, a different back then. Right, yeah. <laughs> but he's no like he's taking the opposite approach that like um, it's easier just to pop down to see someone in a, a small village. So maybe if you're in a small village where you can over time get to know everyone, then you can pop around to someone's house. Maybe that was a bit more common a hundred years ago. I don't know. But he's always making the opposite case that it's easier for him to socialize in the small town than it is in the big city. Again, I don't entirely um, buy that these days because it's just that much easier to connect with people um, and, you know, text 10 of your friends and say, is anyone here? And does anyone want to grab a coffee? And you can find someone. Whereas in that day, it probably was a little bit harder. So it's uh, it'd be interesting to see how different that is today compared to a hundred years ago. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, Nat, you said Austin. Everybody lives pretty close. Like, is that uh, different than what you noticed in other places that you've lived? Well, the proximity is definitely a huge upgrade. Like compared to living in New York, where living in New York required, you know quite a bit of it was just hard to see somebody if they lived on the other side of manhattan let alone in another borough right yeah, whereas, another borough is like another city basically yeah exactly <laughs> whereas here 
it's definitely a lot easier, but we also definitely don't do the unscheduled dropping in on each other, right? Which I, I do feel like is the one thing that you can get in a small town, but I'm not sure that it's because of the small town, rather the type of work and lifestyle that is naturally inhabited there, right? Like there's no reason you couldn't do that in a city if everybody was working uh, similar types of jobs and lifestyles, right? The reason it's hard, I think, is because most of us heavily schedule our day around work and meetings. Then when you have kids, you have like, you know, soccer practice and band rehearsal or whatever. So people are like always going to scheduled things. But if you, you know, if you chose to just not do a ton of scheduled stuff and you had a really flexible work schedule, then you could have that kind of dropping in. Uh, and I really like, I don't remember where I first heard this distinction. It's an old concept though, basically like the idea of a third place, right? Where we, I think mm, we inherently... Yep. We inherently don't love people showing up unannounced to our house. Uh, you know, I think there's a difference between that and saying like, "Oh, just come over whenever," and you know, we'll be doing dinner, right? Like, I think that's one thing. Showing up unannounced to somebody's house, I feel like, always has this kind of like weird energy to it. But then you have like this idea of a really great third place where, and it could be like a local bar, it could be a coffee shop, it could be an office, could be. Uh, well, I guess it's not supposed to be the office. The office is the second place. Then the third place is. You know, a, a fun social area where people go and you can like run into your friends without having to schedule things. That's and, ideal. Yeah. And I think that that's the thing that gets lost in a city that's easier to reproduce in a smaller town. Because in Austin, I mean, and especially in New York and whatnot, there are thousands of coffee shops and bars and restaurants, and everybody has their own coffee shop closest to their house that they go to. And you know we're not all probably going to go to the same coffee shop on a given day, even if we live within five or ten minutes of each other. Whereas if you have a designated third place that everybody goes to at five or six p.m. or whatever, then you you have those unplanned social interactions. And I I feel like the the unplanned social interactions are really what like a lot of people are looking for with these kinds of changes because I, I notice that that's what brings me a lot of joy too is like just seeing your friends without having to plan for it all the time like having to line up calendars gets exhausting so if you just have like a designated spot you all go to really regularly uh at around the same time then you get that like natural social interaction like for a long time we had a basically every saturday we knew that everybody in like a few mile radius would be at the same coffee shop from Nine ish to eleven thirty ish, and you would see like a dozen of your friends every Saturday morning. Oh, that sounds and, great! Like, yeah, unfortunately, good. unfortunately, the cafe closed, and you know we didn't have a good replacement spot for us. That routine kind of died, and I feel like everybody's pretty sad <laughs> about having like lost that routine. So uh, that, at least to me, feels like one way you can bridge the gap. Right by like going out of your way to create designated third places or designated like standing events where nobody has to show up right on time. They can kind of come and go, and they know they're going to see people. I, I feel like that makes a pretty big difference. Was it yeah. planned that everybody would show up at that coffee shop at that time, or was it just it just sort of organically happened? It just kind of organically happened. Uh, I mean, the Even way better. it started yeah. was a few of us would go to a Barry's boot camp at eight thirty, <laughs> and then we'd go there for coffee after. And then we would just start texting other people saying like, oh, we're, you know, we're going to go here for like coffee at 930 if you want to come hang. And then people who are like in town and visiting, 
uh, you know, we'd say like, oh, just, you know, come meet us at coffee, you know, like meet a bunch of other friends too. And it just sort of like, you know, very organically grew from there, which is really nice. And like, we, we do a similar thing where some of us go swimming and get coffee on like Thursday mornings. And like, you know, that's a really nice one too, where everybody kind of knows it's happening and it doesn't need to, like, you don't have to schedule anything. Like th- those are such a nice way to kind of like, I think recreate a bit of that small town energy in a big town. And that's probably one of the few things I actually miss about college. Like I, I didn't, you know, I don't have the same nostalgia about college. I feel like that we're supposed to have, I don't know if that's the right way to put it. (laughs) I I think that's the source of everyone's nostalgia. That's the only good thing about college is that all your friends live like right there. And you you would just run into your friends randomly. Yep. So nice. Yeah. Yeah. And you would have like, like there's, special like designated nights out or things at certain like like you know that bar has the thursday night good party to go to so you can go there with a couple of friends and you will probably run into a few people that you know and you go oh hey how you doing um and then on saturday nights it's at this place and on monday nights it's at this place and you just kind of get those natural encounters that like you say you don't get when you're not in a a college environment the other thing that um i just thought about when you mentioned barry's boot camp that is that this is exactly why I love CrossFit so much in my old city because I'd gone regularly enough and like in the same times enough that I got to know, you know, five or 10 people who always went to the same classes as me. So like, I know if I turn up at Tuesday at a 6 PM class, these three or four guys are probably going to be there or like two of those five are going to be there. Um, and we can kind of hang out and chat and lift some weights and do a workout and it'll be good fun and occasionally go for a beer or something afterwards. And that was great for those social interactions as well, uh, as well as obviously being really good for your health because it makes you want to go to the gym because that's where you know your friends are and that's where you're going to bump into people that you want to hang out with. And I realized that's exactly the reason why I haven't been as dedicated with it since we moved cities because I haven't got to know the people in that group as well. So I don't have that pull to go and see them. So I don't, I don't really care that much about like CrossFit or working out, but what was really good to me was bumping into friends and uh, chatting to them and seeing them and kind of working out together. And that was a very effective third place. Yeah, that's interesting. And and that's something I wonder if you're in like too big of a city, you don't get. And if you're in like, and it might not even be about too big of a city. It's like, like Nat, you're talking about Austin. It's not like Austin's a small place, no, but you like guys top sort 10 of, now. Yeah. Yeah. And you guys, but it's, it's that you and your friends kind of organically ended up having that third place. And I guess the question is, can you, can you create that in a non-organic way? And is it still, then do you kind of defeat the purpose if it's not organic? You know what I mean? Like if, Mm. if you're like, Hey, let's all plan to meet at this coffee shop. Like then it becomes something where it is planned and it's on the calendar. You know what I mean? It's like, you're kind of, yeah. uh, Yeah. It's like this, uh, like you're defeating the purpose of that. Of that third so place. To me, to me, plan the the challenge of like, or when I think of something as planned, I think of it as something fixed on your calendar with a defined like start and end time where yep. you do not have the option of not showing up without causing like you know negative social karma, right? Where it's like if I just didn't show up to the recording at one, you guys would be like, what the fuck? Right. (laughs) But if I don't show up to the Saturday coffee, nobody's like, Hey, what the fuck you said you would be here. Right. It's kind of like a a standing thing. So to me, that that's almost more of the, that's more of the important part of unplanned is kind of like always having this option of 
being social when you want to be without the obligation of you know committing or without the obligation of like having to do everything that you put on your calendar in a given week right like i've had this question a lot recently where i don't know if you guys feel this way but i hate having stuff on my calendar where I wake up and I look at it and I think like, oh God, I have to like do all these meetings today. I just want to work on code or I just want to write. I don't want to like get on calls. And I, you know, I feel like some of that is this like sense of, you know, he talks about having to like go in and, you know, do your job and like you're not a master of your own time anymore. And we've all become like masters of our, or we've, our calendars have become masters of us, right? Where even yep. if you're self-employed, like you kind of work for your calendar. And that can be a it's 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 this funny thing where it's like if you have the conviction to be like somewhat self-employed, then you don't like anybody telling you what to do. <laughs> but then it's like every morning you wake up and your past self is telling your current self what to do. And you're like, Yep. <laughs> Screw you, past self. I don't want to do that today. <laughs> like right. I want to do, you know, what I want to do. And so there, there's just something that feels a little different about those like social gatherings where you don't have to be right on time. It, it's okay if you don't show up, all of that. Like there's just something that that it feels a little bit different. So like I agree with you that you are kind of like defeating the purpose by having planned stuff, but I think there's also something inherently different about, you know, call them third place activities where you you have that out without having to like apologize to anyone. Yeah, your calendar point is such a good one. I've I've been trying to batch more of my calls on like the same day. So this is it's like a double-edged sword though. So my Mondays and Tuesdays end up being super call heavy and then my Wednesday, Thursday, Fridays are very few calls. It's usually just like, I mean, it, stuff like this, the podcast we're recording on a Wednesday, which I don't count as a call. Uh, this is fun. Or it's like a friend catch up, like Nat, what we what we did last week. So I've been doing doing it that way. The catch is my Mondays and Tuesdays are miserable. I just like I'm not having fun on those two days. <laughs> but then but then like the other days, I love those days. So yeah, I, I'm like I'm generally trying to be more ruthless about cutting out meetings, but I had you know there's some things you just can't some meetings you just can't uh, avoid, and they're obviously not all bad. But I do get that same feeling like when I wake up on Monday and look at my calendar, I'm just like, can't wait till Wednesday, you know, <laughs> when I get my calendar back. Um, so what, I know that feeling exactly. So one thing that has always interested me about city life, and this probably extends to the country too. Maybe maybe the country is the solution to this. And maybe this is what the book is getting at. But if you like live in a city, one thing you notice is that they're the people who seem to have the richest social life are the richest people and the poorest people. Because the like the poorest people in the city, like you'll often see, you know, just like out and hang out on the street together, like hang out in parks, like there's out and about, like spending time together. And I love about you guys, but I don't go spend like three hours every day in the park with my friends, like completely unscheduled. And <laughs> sounds kind of I like I kind of wish my friends did that, right? Like <laughs> that sounds really nice. Right. And I know it's sort of like a I don't know. I'm sure somebody could find some way to cancel me for that statement, but whatever. Right. It's like there, there's something a little envious about that. And there must be some reason for that. And it could just be that, you know, if you're not employed, then you have more time to like, you know, be social. Or maybe if you, you know, have you know, like if you don't have the work and money part of your life as controlled, then you know, it's you can like find comfort in, you know, having a richer social life. I don't know what it is, but it's just always been interesting to me that the people who have more seem to like it 
you know, have a much less rich social life until you get to the like top of the earning, you know, whatever pyramid. And then you're like leisure class and could just spend all day, you know, hanging out on your boat on the lake and like having parties <laughs> with your friends and doing all of that. But you kind of like need a lot of money to right. do that. Right. And it's sort of the same for family size. Like the only people who can realistically have more than I'd say two or three kids are like very rich people or poorer people. Because if you're very rich, then you can like hire help and you don't have to worry about like, okay, how are we going to fit them all in the car? How are we going to fly places? How are we going to like, you know, manage their employments and their school? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You can like, you can buy a sprinter van to like drive everyone around and have three nannies. And like they, you know, the really rich people get to have like six kids because their like lifestyle can sustain it. But then if you have a lot less, you can also kind of afford to have like six kids not because you have the financial means, but because your expectation for what your day-to-day life and leisure would be are so much lower that you're not trying to like go out to eat every night for dinner. You're not trying to like fly somewhere every few months for a vacation. You're not you don't have all these expectations about what your like day-to-day life should be. And so you can actually have a larger family. Right. It's kind of like a a weird like reversal, right? Because I mean most people yeah. used to have four, five, six, eight kids, whatever, and they like were making way less money oh, than, yeah. you know, almost anybody is today, but they were able to do it because you just like lived in your house and you farmed. And, you know, I don't want that lifestyle, but it is interesting how I would imagine that like having a large family is, you know, one of the most meaningful things you can do with your life. But because of the like type of lifestyle that we have all, you know, ended up in for better or worse, it's it's almost like like that opportunity is almost priced out for us. Yeah, I wonder whether, like you said, that like at the top end, it's because people can afford to have that additional leisure time and hire a living nanny and call a private car to drive them to a restaurant and all that kind of good stuff. That means they have more free time. And then in the middle, I don't know about you guys. By the sounds of it, you guys are the same as me. And that since I left school to go to university, I've lived in five different cities in 10 years whereas i know plenty of people and i have family members who stayed in the same city that they grew up in and live around the corner from their parents who live around the corner from you know their other cousins and their other siblings and they just tend to stay a lot closer to family and so you end up with that more natural social group of either family who haven't moved around and other people that you kind of went to school with and have known now for kind of 20 or 30 years. Um, and you have that built in social network already versus someone like me, who's moved 150 miles every two or three years for a decade, which makes it very hard to get that kind of um, that really solid roots and that social network. That means you have people around and ultimately, like if you think that it takes a, a village to raise a kid or whatever the quote is, being around more friends and family um, just by virtue of the fact that you've never left might make it a lot easier to have more kids um, and to have more of that built-in social network. I wonder how much that plays a role. That's a good point. Instead of having like, instead of needing a nanny, for example, you might have, you know, a, a friend who you've known for 25 years who can take care of the the child or a, or an aunt or uncle or somebody like that. Yeah. Or, you know, I am, um, uh, friends of ours live like five minutes down the road from um, the woman's parents, and then the husband's parents or parent lives 
another 10 minutes away in the other direction. So like within a five or 10 minute drive, they have three grandparents they can call on right. for daycare. Yep. And one of those is usually available like at the drop of a hat if they need to run out and do something or just want to go around and say hello and have a coffee and see how people are doing. But those kind of options are available to them. Yeah, that's a really good point too, Nat. Yeah, you were making it earlier about not even just for like the the family size, but also just in terms of uh, like overall lifestyle. So there's there's one thing that he talks about in the book. I think it's yeah, here it is, chapter three, where he actually and he starts asking himself these questions basically. And I think all three of us have probably asked ourselves these questions as well, just given things we've read and talked about in the past. Uh, starts asking himself like why do I need the money that I need basically? And I think that is definitely, I can, I can't speak for you guys, but for, that's definitely a trap that, that I fall into myself where, you know, money is kind of a quantifiable metric and it's, it's easy to kind of judge how you're doing in life based on that metric. It's just the most obvious, easy metric to use. Um, but there is so much more to life than just your income. Uh, and income, it's very easy to forget too that income and money are basically a means to an end, right? It's like you you don't need money for the sake of having money. You need money to enable you to do the things that that you want and for security and obviously you know to raise your children and things like that. But it's not the be all end all goal. And that is something that I think, at least for, I can't speak for you guys again, but like for myself, I've, there are definitely times in my life that I've forgotten that and where uh, I kind of almost judging by my actions, basically, and, and making money like the, the highest priority. And I think the questions that he's asking in this book, uh, I think here's this quotation that he says, which is that principle was that my first business as a rational creature was not to get a living, but to live. And that I was a fool to sacrifice the power of living in securing the means of life. Read a quote a couple of years ago, I think, that really drove this point home for me. I think it's from Tim O'Reilly, but I might need to double check that. But the guy who um, started the company that does all the O'Reilly books, and he said, uh, money is to life as gas is to a road trip. Like It's good and it's useful and it lets you do the things you want to do. And having more is better because it gives you more options. But the point of a road trip isn't to accumulate the most gas in your tank. And yeah. you'd never go anywhere. You'd stop and you'd fill up and then you'd just sit there and never go anywhere. And then you say, great, I got to the end of the road trip with a full tank. Like, who fucking cares? You didn't see anything. You didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. What was the point? And it's kind of, for me, framing it in those kind of, in that way, really helped me ultimately, like, understand what I was doing and why. And particularly when um, it was it was really obvious to me a couple of years ago when I was working a job that paid okay. It was quite good. It wasn't amazing. But I was commuting an hour to work and back. So it was about a 40 mile drive. And so I was spending two hours a day in the car and probably 200 pounds a month on fuel just to do that. And I thought, like, I could literally make my life better by taking a five or a 10 grand pay cut and working from home full time or working a 10 minute walk away because I would get some more exercise. I wouldn't be sat in the car for two hours in traffic, just getting annoyed. And I literally wouldn't be spending all this money on just driving to and from work. Like, this is ridiculous. What am I doing? Which is one of the reasons why when I got the job after that, uh, we rented a flat, an apartment that was a I don't know, 10 minute walk away and a, a five minute bike ride. And that change in commute made way more difference to my quality of life than any change in income would. Completely believe that. that. Yeah. Yeah. 
the the commuting thing it, and it's going to be interesting to to see how work styles shift in the you know post covid era because like every it's pretty hard to justify now that you need employees to come in every day for 8 hours a day right like i think any company that requires that beyond i'd say like i think you know for the first 10 employees at a startup there's a lot of benefit of getting everybody together all day just for like pace of you know how quickly you can ship and whatnot but beyond that it's so hard for a company to say like oh no you have to be in here all day every day but i also think people don't want to work remotely all day every day and working in coffee shops kind of sucks and co-working places are like one solution but i almost wonder if we're going to see like kind of a blending of the office in the third place right where it you can kind of like turn an office space into a like half social, half productive environment and where you organize based on where all of your friends are also working versus where, you know, like working with your friends instead of like trying to be friends with who you work with. Right. I think that will be like a really interesting shift that we might see. And I just, I think of it because we, that's kind of happening here where uh, one of my friends has, I guess two of my friends have an office. It's like decently large and it's pretty near uh, where I live, but none of their, or most of their employees don't go into the office anymore. So it's like empty on most days. But a few of us just started going in to work from there, even though we don't work from the companies, but just because it's a nice like social spot <laughs> to go work from on a few days a week. And I could see something like that becoming more common, right? It's like, instead of going to work in your company's office, you go to work in an office with like all of your friends so that you can like hang out and be social in between productive periods as well. Yeah, I could definitely see that. Like I have the option to work from home now, but I choose to go into the office three or four days a week, mainly because I get incredibly bored and lonely working at home all day. And like yeah, having done it kind of dystopian. Forced, it's horrible, man. And having yeah. done it like with no other option for 18 months or so during the pandemic, like as soon as I I moved companies to a company that said, no, we're just in the office rather than work from home. And I said, great, I'll come there like five days a week. And then I dialed that back a little bit to like three or four, mainly so, well, partly so I can have a little bit more quiet time at home and partly so we don't have to put our dog in doggy daycare five days a week. Hmm. Um, so we're managing to do that. But um, yeah, like forced working from home full-time remotely, I think sucks. I, I like I quite like going into the office. I like the people I work with. And it gives me a bit more kind of social context, um, social contact rather. But yeah, Nat, like you said, if there was a way to do that, but go to a third place that had friends of mine and we could work there and, you know, little meeting rooms off in the side, if you need to go and take a call and all that kind of stuff, good coffee and good Wi-Fi, I could see that being a very popular place. The thing that I wonder with, because this is such a common desire, right? The, the desire that's sort of expressed in the quest of a simple life. And we hear it so much. I mean, I've definitely talked about it. Your friends talk about it. But I wonder what the underlying dissatisfaction is that we are imagining being solved by moving out to the country, right? Because it's not going to be easier to get good food, right? Supply chain is definitely going to be easier in a big city. You're not going to have like more people you can meet. There's definitely going to be more people in a big city. You're not going to have access to better amenities or schools or like you know so what what do we think it's solving part of it's probably the 
you know, the attachment to nature, right? Like yep. being able to be outdoors and in nature. And I think a lot of it too, honestly, is just not having to be at the whims of a job that you really dislike so that you can afford to live somewhere. Like that that came through as a stronger reason than anything else in the book where it was like, oh, I'm trying to earn 700 pounds a month or whatever so I can live in London. But if I subsist on 250, then you know I don't have to deal with like this job I hate, but I and I get to like live out here. But it's almost not even clear if it is a a cost or a benefit, right? It's like is he happy is he happy because he doesn't have this job he hates anymore? Or is he happy because he's out in the country? Right. And I'm inclined to think it's more driven by the first one, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's a bit of both. Like he has this quote here. Um, I had an obstinate craving for fresh air, unimpeded movement, and outdoor life. I wanted mm. the earth that I wanted to live in the close embrace of the earth. And then he says, like, um, those rare excursions which I took into the genuine country left me aching for days afterwards with an exquisite pain. Now, like I don't know about you guys. I've never quite felt an exquisite pain having gone into the country for an afternoon, but I do see the the attraction and the appeal. I think it's almost like a core primal instinct for people to want to be around sunlight and fresh air and big green open spaces. There's just something yeah. like there's something about it that makes certainly makes me feel kind of more at peace. And Andrew, from what I've what I've read about London in the 1800s, like it was incredibly dirty, as were most horrible places in general. Yeah, yeah. This Terrible. this is the other thing. So, like, if you put this in um, historical context, so this is like 1905, I think it is, which is, I think, pre-electricity, pre-private car. London is also a much much smaller place. Um, so I don't know what you would think of modern day London with you know 100 story skyscrapers and things like that. But yeah, it's not that long at all after the industrial revolution and like set the center of London would still have been packed with tons and tons of factories billowing out smoke everywhere. Uh, there's parts of the book where he talks about like, you don't realize how dirty London is until you leave because everything in London gets covered in this like black film of soot just from living in the city. And again, I don't think it's quite that bad now, but I, I guess that's part of what he was escaping from was that, Maybe it was a sort of industrial dystopia to him. I don't know how much he'd seen it develop because I'm not sure exactly what age he is when he's doing this. But maybe even if he's seen big changes in London over the past 15 or 20 years or so, up to 1905, and he thinks, okay, I can't deal with this anymore. This is the time to get out and I need to go somewhere where uh, my clothes and my table and my furniture don't get covered in a thin layer of soot just from living day to day. That may well be part of it. Yeah. And think about too, like, I think the other part is, I mean, I don't know what his office was. He he did say it was like a dingy room, but I mean, I'm just picturing like a cubicle farm in a modern day, right. That somebody has to go in. If you're sitting in that cubicle farm day after day, I mean, I can certainly see why somebody says, Hey, I really want to get out into nature. Like, cause it's the opposite in so many ways. Yeah. hundred percent. I mean, and I think going back to the point we mentioned earlier, I think it does say somewhere like ideally the the optimal solution would be a bit of both. Yeah, he says if I could choose for myself, I would even now choose the life of pleasant alternation between town and country because I am persuaded that the true piquancy and zest of all pleasures lies in contrast. And um, I think I've heard uh, Rory Sutherland say this idea on a I think it was a podcast or it might have been in his book Alchemy. I don't know if you guys have read that, but he talks about. Um, 
like if you if you could afford it and you had the resources to do so probably we'd all admit that the ideal house to buy is actually two houses and you'd want to buy an apartment in the center of Manhattan or London or something for the week and then you'd want uh it doesn't have to be you know a country manor but a country house somewhere that you can retreat to for long weekends or a couple of weeks at a time to get away from it all and do a little bit of both um which is actually the exact setup that the founder of my last company or a previous company had he had a an apartment right on the south bank of the thames that he rented and then he owned a big place up in the country up north which he used to go to like at weekends and things like that and i always thought that would probably actually be the best setup it's just that most of us can't afford that or that's an unrealistic or even that we perceive it to be unrealistic and we think it's not doable and so what a lot of people end up doing is taking what they think is the best of both worlds and living in say the suburbs which occasionally might be the best of both worlds but there's probably some of the um, the worst of both worlds at times as well yeah I, I thought his point about the suburbs was really spot on <laughs> right where he's got this line about how it's like there it's in in an attempt to get the best of both worlds you end up with the worst of both right, right? where you're you're neither like near all of the good stimulating parts of a city but you also don't have all of the like wonderful parts of nature and i i am inclined to agree with that right i just there's something about the the sterility of like these very artificial manufactured locations 15 20 minutes outside of a major city that like don't really have their own like culture or nature yeah, they're, man, that, they're entirely man-made like yeah yeah organic it's, just, right. it, it's just i don't know it's a weird solution and it probably was an attempt to solve this kind of like desire, right? It's like, oh, well, uh, you know, people don't want to live in the middle of cities because they're like dirty and gross and have a lot of crime and they, but they need to still be able to like get to work. So you can have it kind of like halfway in between. But yeah, it really just feels like a suboptimal solution. Yeah. yeah. 100%. Nat, I know you have to go in a, in a few minutes. Um, so there's one section I definitely wanted to get your thoughts on. So a little bit further in, I think it's like chapter five, he starts talking about, well, I'll read this section from the, from, from the book. So there's a quotation. He says, in plain words, there's no middle course between accepting the yoke or finally rejecting it. Either course may be justified, but it is the silliest folly to accept with complacency a yoke which you mean to shake off the moment you have courage or opportunity to revolt. And in that, he's talking about his employment and how he basically hated it and was kind of living with it um, until he just made the decision that he's going to reject it. Um, I highlighted that I passage too. Is- yeah, <laughs> I was thinking. I was thinking about that even with like entrepreneurship, right? There's so many people I know who are employed, or you know, but or or have been employed for a number of years, and just they keep saying, "Oh, I'm going to work for myself at some point," or "Oh, I'm going to leave at some point," and then uh, just don't, just don't leave. And and he talks about that. I mean, he says people. Yeah, I think specifically, actually, he says men may chafe for years at the conditions of their lot without in any way attempting to amend them. I think that's so true. Oh, it's really true. And I think it kind of ties in with like the the current event with uh, Chamath's whole like statement about, you know, not caring about stuff in China (laughs) and like below his line. Right. And like, you know, when you take it out of context, it sounds really bad, but there's a truth in what he's saying and what the author is saying here where it's like people love to talk about the stuff they quote unquote care about or the stuff they're going to change or the stuff they're going to do and it's 
it's really hard to catch yourself like when you're doing that without like taking any action or without like actually using the information or like actually following through on the desire, right? It's like, oh, I, I really, really want to lose, you know, like five or 10 pounds. I really want to like run a marathon. I really want to like quit my job and like start a company. It's like, it's such a, it, it's, it's so hard to like break that habit. But I mean, he's right. It's like you either need to accept your situation and try to like make the most of it and recognize that like maybe at some point you'll change it but in the meantime you're going to try to like not like complain all the time or you should like actually do something <laughs> and right. it, it's like i don't know it it seems so obvious but i think it's really true especially in this where it, like it's so easy to just like whine about stuff um and it's hard to actually do anything yeah, I was just saying it feels good to complain a lot of times. In some ways, it's kind of like mental masturbation in some ways, right? You're just like, you're just kind of like feeling good because you're complaining about it. You know, these days, maybe you'd watch like YouTube videos about something, right? Or like read a book about something and then feel like, oh, I'm making progress towards that goal. Like, for example, if you're employed in a job you hate and you read a book about entrepreneurship, okay, cool. Like, but if you don't do anything with that, then you're just kind of like making yourself feel a little bit better temporarily, yeah. but uh, not really changing your conditions. And I'll, I'll drop this last one before I leave, which is, I think like the worst example is people who just like repost like super political or like super, you know, opinionated social stuff on like Instagram and Twitter, but like aren't actually doing anything about the situations they like pretend to care so much about besides like posting memes on Instagram. It's like, like either do something or stop like filling your friends' feeds with you know <laughs> whatever new political thing came across like your like internet stream. I don't know. Like this is why I try to avoid political stuff or like I try not to post about it too much because I know I'm not going to do anything about it. Right? Like I <laughs> like I I have no intention of like running for office or like helping get somebody elected. I just like have other stuff I'm more interested in. But it's hard and, to not just like complain about things, even when you have yeah. no intention of changing them. But that's exactly what I thought about, like all the people who were dunking on Chamath on Twitter and saying, "Well, what do you mean you don't care about the Uyghurs?" And this is a horrendous situation. And I, I kind of thought to myself, oh, "I'm fascinated to see how many of these people have personally taken action or donated money or given up their time to help the Uyghurs in China." Yeah, I bet it's probably quite a small percentage. And you could, I, you know, I think there is a defensible response to what I just said, which is like, oh, well, but by talking about it publicly, you're raising awareness. And I think that's true. But there is also kind of like a limit to that, right? Where it's like, right. I, and I don't think it's unfair to expect that if somebody is, you know, positioning themselves as caring deeply about something or being like horribly, you know, offended or distraught about something, it's like, okay, well, you know, what have you done about it? And if it's nothing, then you don't actually care that much. Right. And you could just say, like, you know what, I, I'm not super moved by this, but it does seem important. So I'm trying to raise awareness on it. But I don't think most people will say that. Anyway, yeah, quit your job, move to the country. It's going to make you happier. <laughs> Author said so. Uh, <laughs> exactly. With that, I planned poorly, so I have to leave. But you two, please carry on. And it was wonderful being here and talking about the book a bit. Yep. We'll see you on the next Thanks, episode. Man. All right. Take care, man. Talk soon, guys. All right. Let's keep going. Yeah, I was um, going to say, just to finish the um, the point there, so I, I made this exact comment in the Google Doc on the you need to finally accept the yoke or reject it section. And I I put um, I feel like I felt this way for a long time uh, with entrepreneurship versus a normal salary job. And I think I finally, um, I think I solved that a couple of years ago. 
but it just requires a lot of quite self-honesty to be honest because i've always thought like i'm the kind of person that will start a company you know i just haven't yet and that is like you said it's a kind of it's a form of like mental masturbation and convincing yourself that you you are someone you think you want to be and in reality you know your actions and how you spend your time bear out the reality that you are not and i just kind of accepted that and went okay like i'm probably not the kind of person that starts a company like that doesn't make me a good person or a bad person it exactly. doesn't change my value as a person whatever it's just my preference i probably don't want to and i'm probably not going to and that's fine be honest with yourself accept it and then move on from it yeah exactly like i've really liked over the years following people who are like uh indie hackers you know people right. who start their own you know their own maybe micro saas or you know some of those companies end up getting quite big but they're solo founders and you know, I was kind of LARPing that for a little while <laughs> with right. um, my Open Innovation Leads project. And it just, after like a year of doing it, and really, to be honest, it wasn't the only thing I was doing. There were other other things. And I just kept finding this project at the bottom of my to-do list. Like I would always find other things to work on before I'd work on this. And sure, I was able to get an MVP out and a, and a few customers. But at some point I was just like, okay, this is not... Like I have to be honest with myself and realize this is not ever going to be a priority for me. And I've realized too, in that, I think partially because of that, um, I realized I work much better with others than on solo projects. So solo right. projects, I think are, I mean, they're fine. And I think it's it's always obviously attractive to own 100% of something, but I've realized I just don't work well that way. And so, you know, for better or for worse, I mean, there are plenty of people who are able to do that. And then uh, for me, it's just not something that I enjoy. And so, you know, if there's, I, again, I, just exactly what you said. I don't think that makes me a good or a bad person. I think it's just being honest with yourself and realizing, okay, that might sound really attractive, but it's just not for me. Um, yeah, hundred percent. And yeah, 100%. and 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 hey, it's I, I am in after going through that process. I am in so much admiration of the people who are able to do it because it is, it's really really difficult when because uh, I was at the same time trying to like I had. I'd learned uh, a bit of Node and React uh, the year before. And so I was actually building the product and trying to you know, grow the product. And it's really hard to do that because anytime there's a bug, right? It's like, you're the one who has to fix it. Anytime right. there's like a support question, you're the one who has to answer that, right? So it's like that whole indie hacker life like sounds really cool, at least from far away. But it is it is not easy, or at least it wasn't easy for me with, the, with that project. Uh, right, right. Yeah. And it's just not, it doesn't play to my strengths, but Hey, that was something that I wasn't being honest with myself before, because I probably knew that before, but after, you know, when you're kind of like in the arena, there's no, you can't really like lie to yourself. Right. Cause results kind of speak for themselves. Yeah. Um, 100%. So yeah, but it, it, it's exactly what you said. It's like, you just have to have that sort of self-awareness um, and then realize that. So yeah, I don't yeah, think I'll ever do that again. I don't think I'll ever do a solo. I, I mean, I don't want to say never say never, I guess, but um <laughs> But but most likely, I have no inclination to do that again. Where I start a solo project like that, yeah, absolutely. I, I completely agree. I feel very similarly. Like I probably consider myself I'm more of an extrovert than I am an introvert. And kind of like I alluded to earlier, I don't like working from home full time because that sucks that extroversion, social contact bit out of work for me. I think yeah. for the exact same reason, I would really hate to be a solopreneur working entirely on my own to develop a product i know like you read um some things on twitter or on people's blogs about how much they love this unstructured free time and they love diving into this deep work that they have in front of them 
And that that's wonderful for those people. I'm really happy. But for them, that's not me. And that's okay. You just got to, like you said, understand who you are and what you're about and how you work best and then just lean into that. It, I think that's exactly right. Yeah, it's like, I guess certain paths, right? You just have to like think about what works well for you. And I think some of that too, you learn by experience. Like maybe, I don't know about you, but like for me, I don't think I would have ever found this out about myself without trying trying to do it. Like I would have always had it in my head that like, oh, I could do that. You know what I mean? Um, right. But then when you actually try, then you're like, okay, actually that's not really for me. Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, you could, this you could, you like, could like maintain the fantasy, I guess, right? Until you try. Right, it. yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's like um, it's like anything, right? If you tell yourself that you will do it at some point in the future, you just haven't got around to it yet, then you can always convince yourself that when you do get around to it, you'll be successful and you'll be good at it. And right. almost the longer you put off doing it, the the more you put off having that moment of truth where you realize whether or not it actually is something you want and something you can do. Um, and you get to live in the the fantasy of the future and tell yourself how your life is going to be in a few years when you do that thing, rather than actually doing it and facing up to the reality of whether or not that is what you want. Yeah, exactly. There's one quote you had in your in your notes, which uh, I think would be interesting for you to read about money falling off as you walk down the street. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let me uh, let me find it in my notes here. So there's a section in the book, I think this is chapter five, where he's essentially talking about the the cost of living in London versus should it, should he move to the countryside and what would the cost of living in the countryside be? And he goes through his personal accounts for the year and looks at how he spent his money and on what, and he breaks it down to this much was on rent and this much was on food and this much was on travel. And he says, okay, I have 52 pounds a year left unaccounted for. Where is it? And he says, what became of the 52 pounds, which found no record in my ingenious schedule? I could not tell, but I was pretty sure that it was absorbed in the petty wastefulness of town life, which reminded me of a friend of mine I met a few years ago when I lived in a a different city. Um, And he'd recently moved to that city from London. So he'd moved from London to Birmingham, which is a much, much cheaper city to live in. And I, I was 26 at the time and still completely enamored with the idea of living in a big city like London or New York. And I said to him, oh, like, why did you move from London into this smaller city? And he said, because in London, when you walk down the street, money just falls off you. It's like you go in here for a, you know, you grab, go and grab a beer with your friend. And it costs six pounds, you know, eight, nine dollars for a beer. Um, you go and grab a coffee and that's four pounds fifty. Your lunch is eight or nine pounds every day. The tube to and from work is another seven or eight pounds every day. Like you just lose money in all these or not lose but spend money in, in all these tiny ways throughout the day and it's a death by a thousand paper cuts thing it's it's and i've definitely found that myself as well it's particularly living in big cities and particularly being younger where you know you want to like you were saying earlier you want to socialize with everyone and you want to go to everything that you get invited to and you think yeah no problem i'll go here and i'll do this and i'll do that and you get to the end of the month and think where's all my money gone what is right. doing this he yep. says um, this bit here. Yeah, by the time London had done ringing gold out of me, there was very little gold left that was my own. Yep, that's. I mean, that sounds similar to my time in New York. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. There were also we didn't even talk about this, but there were some really interestingly like antiquated sayings in this book too, which were which were kind yes. of funny. Yeah, um, like if anyone's going to pick up this book and read it and expect to. Love it. Like it's it's written in a very, you know, old timey hundred year old thing. Yeah. But some of the exactly. stuff he says about women in particular is 
pretty shocking, particularly to a modern eye. So I like this one. Uh, this one here. It says, among the Anglo-Saxon peoples, women are not encouraged to take any vital interest in the pursuits of their husbands, as they are among the Latin races. I should not be surprised to find that half the women in the London suburbs do not know the precise nature of their husbands' occupations. Um, a French woman of the bourgeois class often has a real aptitude for business. She can manage a shop, keep accounts, take an interest in markets, and in all questions of commercial enterprise, she's the confidant and often the advisor of her husband. Your English woman of the same class prides herself rather on her total ignorance of business. It is probable that in 20 years of married life, she has not once visited the warehouse or the office where her husband earns the income which she spends which is hopefully not true these days. I know it's certainly not true between like me and my wife. We talk about things a lot and she, you know, she has her own full-time job that she talks with me about and vice versa, but it was pretty, um, it's quite shocking, but kind of amusing yeah. to read as well. He does have a section later though, which is very complimentary to women, but again, it still just sounds antiquated, but he says women I have long noticed or women of the best kind I ought to add have much more genius in finance than men. They have a much keener sense of the use of money. An excellent thing in women when it does not deteriorate into cheese pairing or sordid parsimony. Right. But they then in being, the very next... Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. Exactly, yeah. He says, they being primitive and unsophisticated creatures are unacquainted with the lax morals of the checkbook. A pound is just 20 shillings to them. And each shilling is an entity and each is spent with an indomitable aim to get the most out of it right so like this is um i don't know whether he's trying to neg the women that he's writing about because he kind of compliments them and says oh they have a great sense of the use of money because they're primitive and unsophisticated creatures i'm not sure what he's (laughs) quite trying to get out there but it was pretty funny yeah i think earlier in that section he was talking about or maybe it's in a previous chapter he's talking about how the checkbook kind of um abstracts away the idea of money Right. right. And I would, I would say it's probably even more true today, right. With credit cards, yeah, but it's like, cards, 100%. yeah. Like if you go spend cash somewhere, you feel that like, I don't know about you, I, at least for me, I, I, and I don't spend cash very often, but when right. I do spend cash, you feel like you are spending money. Whereas a credit card, it like kind of doesn't matter if it's 20 or 60 or $80. It's like all the same from an uh, emotional standpoint. Right. Yeah. You just tap the card or swipe the card or put your right. number in and that's it. Like It's just a transaction as opposed to handing over like physical notes and seeing your, you know, your wallet gets thinner and thinner throughout the day right. spending money. Yeah, yeah. Yep. I think that's, he was probably alluding to that where he's saying the checkbook thing. Um, Cause he was saying how, I think in an earlier chapter, it wasn't in this chapter, he was talking about how with, when you abstract away, like the, uh, the idea of money, like, I think he was, there was one part where he said, if you buy something and you just use your checkbook to buy it, and the amount kind of doesn't matter. You don't value that good that you just bought the same way right. that you do if if it's something that uh, you sort of feel you earned with your with your labor. Yeah, absolutely. On a, a similar point, so there's a few sections in here that I really wanted to draw attention to because I think they're quite illustrative. So this one in particular says, um, "The sports of the civilized man are means to means of life to the natural man." If a man must need sweat and be bemired, which I think just means sweaty and grim, uh, and have an aching back, it is surely better economy to have a house and a good meal at the end of it all than merely a good appetite for a meal that he has yet to pay for. So basically he's talking about how doing manual labor around his house and farming lo- local land and uh, things like that are just as good exercise as going to the gym or going for a run or something like that. But they also accomplish something else at the same time. 
either saving money or you're improving your house or you're you know, growing the um, crops that you're growing or tending to the livestock. Yeah, um, so it's like a two for one. A lot, exactly, yeah. It reminded me a lot of, um, it's kind of the inverse of that um, bit in one of Taleb's books. I can't remember which one, but where he, he shows disdain on a guy who pays a bellhop to carry his bags up the stairs oh, yes. to his hotel room yeah. and then yep. goes to the hotel gym afterwards. You should just yep. carry the damn bags yourself, dude. Um, yeah, it's kind of like taking the stairs, right? Or the elevator, right? You can right, uh, yeah, yeah. take the stairs, and then if you take the elevator, then you go to the gym and get on the treadmill. Right, right? Exactly. It's like, um, I think that was also was, from Taleb. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There was another bit in here where he talks about when he's doing, when he's renovating his house that he's rented, and he says something here, but we are all children and in nothing so much perhaps as in the kind of delight we take in any form of building. He talks about like building bricks um, with a child is just as good as building the Tower of Babel or the pyramids. Um, and he says, what can, what can there be more delightful than to see that which you have dreamed grow into tangible and enduring form? And so I've true. personally, yeah. And I've personally done some DIY since my wife and I bought our house about 18 months ago and it was in serious need of a lot of renovation. And we, we've contracted out a bunch of the stuff that we can't do like electrics and plumbing work and things like that. But some of it we've done ourselves. So, um, you know, built some cupboards and shelves and we've put up some paneling on the walls and fitted skirting boards and fitted wardrobes and things like that. And the, it's, it is hard when you're doing it and it's frustrating and you swear and you kick the cupboards and they don't work for a bit. But when you finish it and when it's done and you can see it built with your own two hands, there's nothing quite like that that's as satisfying. Um I read, a, I read a book a few years ago. I think it's in published in the US called Shopcrafter's Soulcraft. In the UK, it's published as The Case for Working with Your Hands. And the author is a guy who was running, I think, a political think tank in DC or something. Uh, and he spent his days, you know, in meetings, writing reports, uh, meeting with clients or funders, managing his team, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and he said to himself, when he got to the end of the day, I'll finish the work day and, you know, shut his computer down. I don't know what I've done. I, I can't see what I've accomplished that day. And it feels very ethereal and intangible. I can't I can't see the usefulness of what I'm doing. Um, so he quit that job and opened a motorcycle repair shop. And he said it was wonderful because at the start of the day, you know, on one side of the garage is 10 bikes and none of them work and you turn the key and they don't go. And at the end of the day, they're all on the other side of the shop. They're all clean and they all work. And there's a very, very tangible, concrete evidence of my own work and my own skill, because now you can turn the key in the ignition and boom, the engine comes on. And that's because of me. I did that. Yep. And I know I've done that because I can see it day to day. And the the there's pleasure and the satisfaction you get from that. Yeah, 100%. Again, I, I haven't like quit my finance job to become a carpenter or anything like that yet, but I can... But it, I guess the other thing is not everything has to be a full-time thing. Like you're still getting pleasure from it by doing, doing it as a, not as a hobby. I mean, you are doing something useful, but, but it is also kind of like a hobby. It's not like you're getting paid for it, but you can still derive pleasure from that. Right. Right. And yeah, it's just interesting. There's a bunch of examples like that, that he talks about where um, it's, it's hard and it's work, but it's work in service of himself and his own life and his family and his home and his immediate community rather than, doing what he's doing in some office context where he can't quite see how it connects to the next person's work and the next person's work. And ultimately all it does is, you know, drive the bottom line for the guy who owns the company. Right. Yeah. Two things I want to say about this, uh, this section. One, I, I 
felt a very similar satisfaction level as what you're talking about with carpentry, but with gardening. So I did a lot of gardening this past year and, uh, it's kind of the same, you know, the same kind of feeling like you, it is a lot of work and it's certainly not like from an economic standpoint, I don't think I'm, you know, making any money, you know, quote unquote, (laughs) right. For like, uh, am I saving any money on produce for, by growing it myself? Probably not because of all the time and, and, you know, other things that go into growing food, but, um, but there's a satisfaction to it. And I don't know, it's just, it's really fun. Uh, There's no other, other way to put it. Um, And then the second thing I wanted to say on this is like, I think this is partially the attraction to working with smaller companies rather than bigger companies Yeah, because yeah, you can, you know, bigger companies, it's very hard to tell um, if what you're doing and what you just spent all day doing is actually making a difference. And if it is making a difference, where exactly is it making that difference? And to feel that, Hey, that's, that's, I, I, I did that. It's really hard to, to find that in a, in a startup or a smaller company, you know, you're probably wearing multiple hats. There's, it's much easier to show or not, not to others necessarily, but to yourself, um, the, the results of what your efforts went into. Yeah, so, I completely agree. That's exactly why I've like, tended to work for smaller companies, particularly yeah. when I, I kind of, uh, oscillated a little bit between, I worked for a big company to start with, then very small company, quite small company. And then I went back to an even bigger company again. So I went to work for Capital One UK. So I, like, the UK branch alone was about 1,500, 2,000 people. And globally, you know, in the US and Canada, there's another 30 or 40,000. Oh, wow. And yeah, I I found it really difficult to tell, like, frankly, what the point of me being there was, particularly because even in um, like an accounting and finance team, like you can have someone who does a particular part of your, you know, monthly numbers and produces a budget and a forecast. And we, my team wasn't doing that. We were doing more like on the face of it, kind of interesting analytics and modeling. And, you know, if the company did this, uh, this would be the impact on our PL over the next 10 years. And if we did this, it would save this much money over this much years, which was all like very interesting analysis and good. And I'm sure it went in many PowerPoint decks to important people. I don't think it actually changed anything. And I like I kind of thought to myself, like, would anyone honestly give a shit if I didn't do anything for six months? And I was <laughs> right. like, probably not that much. Well, they, they might care because the, the company had kind of fostered this performance culture and everyone was pushing for promotions and bonuses and your you know year-end bonuses based on your rating that you get in your performance review, which is basically based on feedback from people around the business. So there's always this... Um, like culture of trying to impress other people. But I, I started thinking about it more as like, this is work theater. Like I'm pretending to do important and interesting work here. And like my heart's just not in this. I just, I don't care. Um, so yeah, that's why I, again, like oscillated way back the other way and went to work for a small company again, where like you say, you can, you can see the impact you've had. Um, particularly for me, like working in finance, I can see the, impact of what I'm doing like on the PL every month because I'm putting together the PL and I can see that that the work that my team and I are doing is literally improving the bottom line month over month over month. And that's really, really gratifying. Even if ultimately yeah. someone is the beneficiary of that rather than me. Yeah, but it's still you feel you you feel that sense of pride in that work. And maybe, I mean, playing devil's advocate, maybe it's our uh, tied to our egos, right? That we need to see a yeah, true. 
you know, that we need to see something tangible. That's the uncharitable way of looking at it. But I, I do, I do really feel like just, I mean, I was not in corporate for, for too long. I was only there for three years, um, was startups before and after, but the corporate years, like the, the struggle was always like exactly what you said is anything I'm doing here actually making a difference. And it was so hard to tell. Um, and I had that same thought, like if I didn't do my job, does anything change? Right. That's right. And it's hard, right? It's really hard for a human being to be in that situation of like, I mean, sure they're paying you and obviously it's, there's way worse things in life than, than that, but it is hard, especially for, for people who do take pride in their work, like to be in that kind of situation. Yeah. I, at yeah. least I felt that way. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. So what were your, um, what are, did you have any like particular big takeaways from this book or is there anything you wanted to do differently in your life at all? Having read this book? I think the beginning part, which he talked about, I, I found myself more impacted by the, the the sort of first section of the book more so than yeah. the later section. Not like the, yeah, the later sections were, yeah, the later sections were good too, but the questions that he was asking himself uh, really kind of made, you know, made me think as well, like, okay, what am I, like, what am I spending to continue working? You know what I mean? So that's, right. that that's one, you know, one very simple one you know, a lot of the things about that he talked about, uh, in terms of happiness, right? Like where you're actually driving your happiness versus what you're just doing for customs, right? Just because they're, you know, uh, customer tradition, or, uh, I think he used a different word for it, but just, just like, um, things that you're doing just to maintain appearances. That was, that was another really interesting food for thought, you know, for me of just, uh, just even as I think about like where I spend my money or what I choose to go work on, right? Like, so much I think of what we choose is often not for ourselves. It's for uh, right. what we think other people will think about it. Um, right, right. And so, yeah, I don't know. The, the first section really made me just kind of think about those things. And I mean, I've always been pretty good uh, besides a couple of years in, in New York on the, on the sort of spending side and not spending, you know, like saving enough and, and all of that. But the thing that, that kind of made me ask myself some questions on this book were, just like using money as a metric or income as a metric, right? Like as a right. as a north star is not necessarily the the right way to go. And that's something. I mean, it's not the first time I've had that thought, but the way that he talks about it, especially in the first call it third of the book, just really makes you ask yourself uh, a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, I think that's fair. I think I had a conversation with a friend. Like this is when we both worked at Capital One, and she she had previously worked, I think, in London for. Um, like one of the big four accounting firms or something. And it was just horrendous hours, you know, 80, 90 hour work weeks, four days a week away from home, staying in hotels and things like that. And she she got to a certain point and said, like, I just, I just, I'm not about that anymore. I don't want that life. And so she met her husband, they got married and they just had their first kid. And she said to me at that point, like, I'm I still want to work hard in my career. In fact, I'll push my career as far as I can go and I'll work as hard as I can while still getting home at 5.30 every night. Um, and that's like, that's the trade-off she was willing to make. So like during the day, absolutely willing to bust her ass and work hard and like, be a, a very good, solid professional, but not going to go crazy and go the extra mile, not going to move across continents or countries or even um, across the UK for another job opportunity. Don't want that. I like this city. I live here. And you yeah. know, I'll take the best career opportunities that arise within a 20-minute commute. 
and that's where I draw the line, which I, I really admired. I thought that was a really good approach. Yeah, and really respect that too to just know what what it is that that you want and what you're looking for, and and kind of draw a line. This is what I'm doing. Um, oh, yeah. I I will say one thing though that that this did impact uh, on a much more minor scale, obviously than uh, <laughs> than how um, that than how he talks. You know, the life changes that he made in the book. So I I had never dropped a client before in my right. entire life. So while I was reading this book, there was a project that I had uh, via my consulting company, and it was just a, a nightmare project. Um, the client was actually okay. It was like a subcontractor to a government uh, project. And I, my client was the subcontractor, but the client client was the US government, which is my first time, by the way, working on a government project. It was right. just not fun for me. And they were paying really well, but I had never, I'd never fired a client before. Not fired, but dropped a project. And this book definitely kind of gave me the courage, I think, to to do that because it was miserable. Like it was just one of those things where it was just every minute of it for me was miserable. And then I was like, why right. am I actually? Why am I doing this? Like I I have a other projects. Not like if I don't have this project, I'm going to be out on the street or anything, you know. So why like why am I putting myself through this? Right, right. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I think it was one of those, like, if I wasn't reading this book at that time, I might've like put up with it for a few more months. So for me, I think the biggest thing has been forcing myself to just spend more time outdoors. So like I'll deliberately take an afternoon or a couple of hours to take our dog and drive out into the country a little bit more. So we live, we live about a 15 minute drive from the city center of Nottingham where we are now, but only 20 minutes the other way to, you know, glorious rolling green hills and beautiful English countryside and just being more um, deliberate about not just, you know, walking the dog for an hour around the streets where I live, but let's take the dog, go to a nice country park somewhere while it's bright and sunny, or even if it's not just to get a bit of fresh air and walk around and deliberately try and spend a bit more time in the country and in nature. I think we're going to try and extend that to more um, like weekend breaks and things like that as well, rather than, saving all our money and our vacation days for a, a big, long two-week trip abroad somewhere to Asia or South America or something. You know, let's do some longer weekends in, you know, the Lake District where he ends up or um, other parts of the UK or the Scottish Highlands, you know, other beautiful country places that we wouldn't necessarily immediately think of as a vacation, but let's be more deliberate about trying to do that more. Yeah, that's a really good, a really good takeaway as well. That was something I'd started doing a lot more of in in 2020. So um, that's probably less of a change for for me. But I that that message in the book is really good too because it also helps you get that balance. I'm sure, right? Besides, right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're not sitting behind your computer all day. And I think especially with things that require you to be at you know there are plenty of jobs that don't require you to be at your desk, but sort of this like white collar work uh, where we're all at our computers, whether we're software developers or we're working on a spreadsheet or something else, like the, the counterbalance of that with getting out into nature. And even if it's just like going for a walk or something is, um, is just really, really nice. Like it's just, you kind of need that balance. All right. I know you have a hard stop, but yeah. So as we wrap up, Andrew, this was awesome. We definitely have to have you back uh, on the show and for a future book, Uh, we'll talk about what maybe, maybe one that we could do, but um, this was really fun Uh, as usual. If you want to support the show, uh, you can leave us a review. Um, I think Spotify even has podcast reviews now. So you can do it there. You can do it on Apple Podcasts, but those reviews are really helpful. And 
You can also support the show uh, on apps that support podcasting 2.0. So Fountain, Breeze, um, probably a handful of others. If you want to leave a tip for for us, uh, feel free to do that. No pressure. We're not going to add commercials into the podcast anytime soon. So uh, (laughs) no no worries on that front, but it is helpful. So uh, feel free to, uh, to leave us a tip there. But yeah, we'll uh, we'll see you guys for the next episode.